You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Welcome to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Sandler. Together, we'll discover the latest and greatest in experiential retail, marketing, and pop-ups. That means fashion, retail, restaurants, art, and entertainment. You're going to hear about new business models, creative strategies, and the latest technologies available that make pop-up sales and marketing effective for brands. Do you remember your first pop-up experience? Mine was a trendy, unmarked restaurant in London that required a password to get into and was all the rage. In today's episode, we're going to dive into the world of experiential restaurants with Chef Austin Johnson, who's best known for his work as the executive chef at Frenchie in Paris, where he ran their three restaurants, wrote their cookbook, and earned himself a Michelin star. In addition, Austin worked at 11 Madison Park and opened the Nomad Restaurant in New York with Chef Daniel Hume. He did staging at Noma in Copenhagen and spent six months at sea on an Alaskan fishing vessel, cooking for the staff, among many other things. Austin has also produced a number of memorable brand collaborations with companies including Bergdorf Goodman and has a significant new dining project underway with ingredients sourced from his biodynamic farm in upstate New York. Welcome, Austin, to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I want to ask you a couple of questions about some of the innovations that you've done that are restaurant collaborations with brands. In fact, the first time that I tried your cooking was at the Frenchie Restaurant and Residence at Intersect, which is the pop-up space by Lexus on 14th Street in New York City. And I believe that the idea there in that space is for people to experience the ethos of the Lexus lifestyle without actually getting behind the steering wheel of one of their cars. I read that they described that as it being all about hospitality. So having a series of great chefs and and restaurant offerings was really important to them. And I remember when they opened in the first round, they also had really interesting cultural exhibitions on the lower level on display, like the Council of Fashion Designers of America winners. And there was this great New York City ballet costume exhibition. And I'm really hoping that they will be able to reopen. So it's very interesting. It's not a dealership or a traditional retail space, but it's this kind of very creative space for guests to be entertained and inspired. And I I loved the food. I was so excited to meet you. And I just wondered, how did you approach that project? Did you have some input as far as the branding of that went? Definitely. I mean, you kind of nailed it. That space was an opportunity for Lexus to show they do things other than build nice cars. And it is all about hospitality and it's a very creative workspace. And they've done some amazing collaborations since Frenchie prior to the shutdown. And it's a restaurant I wish more people knew about, but they will slowly get the word out. It, it was an amazing opportunity. You know, it was delayed for many years. My first week at Frenchie in Paris, Gregory Marchand, the chef owner of the company, called me and he says, Hey, I just got off the phone with Danny Meyer. And he said, we're doing this collaboration, this this really great pop-up experience with Lexus, the car company. USHG is going to run 
the front and back house operations. And what we want to do is three month residence with great chefs from all over the world. So Danny Meyer being a big fan of Frenchie called Greg and says, Hey, we think it would be great for you to be the first one. So as soon as I got to Paris, I already had a project back in New York city. Gregory said, Hey, Austin, this project kind of has your name written all over it. Why don't you grab this one by the horns and, and just kind of run with it? So we did that and we flew back and forth from Paris to New York several times doing recipe development and tastings and even flew the Lexus staff to Frenchie in Paris. And they spent time with us there to kind of understand the culture of the restaurant so they could better implement that into our residence. So, you know, it was supposed to open in October and it got pushed back to the next October and almost pushed back to another October due to construction issues. But we did finally get it open and it was an amazing experience. It was 100% my menu. I got to be involved with a little bit of the design and the cafe and the bakery downstairs and the coffee shop. But really, Alexis did an amazing job of building a beautiful space that didn't really need our input other than a cool playlist and in some cool cookbooks to kind of display. But we approached it, you know, Frenchie is such a popular brand in New York City as well. And I would say at close to 60% of our diners in the Paris restaurant are New Yorkers or Chicago, LA, San Francisco. So, you know, we, we had a great audience and Pete Wells came in and gave it a really great review in the New York Times, which was the day after we got a Michelin star back in Paris. It was awesome. Greg was there. I was there. We spent two months kind of in New York getting it up and running and we loved it. And every time that there's a new chef in collaboration, I'm the first one there. And it was really great because USHG for myself really became a family and really supported by that company. And even today, when I go into any of their restaurants, they somehow know that I was the guy that was running the Frenchie both in Paris and in the Lexus space. So it, it was awesome. We, we really enjoyed it and something that we would absolutely do again. Yeah, it's an, a really interesting extension of the Frenchie brand and then like a complete innovation for Lexus. So I, I give them yeah. both a lot of credit. I went to the one when, when we signed up for it. I had happened to have a, a trip already booked to Tokyo. And they have a Lexus, the exact same restaurant in Tokyo. And they also have one in Dubai. Oh, so this cool. was their third space. And I went to the one in, in Tokyo. And it was important to Greg that this Lexus opportunity fell in line with his brand. And seeing the one in Tokyo and, and seeing the space in New York, it, it was really, really well done. Very thoughtfully done. And were there connections to their customers? Like were there customer events in the space that you were aware of? Definitely. We did. I mean, Mr. Toyota himself was at several of the events that we did. A lot of the Lexus, I don't know really what a Lexus like VIP is, but uh, they were around and yeah, it was great. I would say at the end of the day, they build a beautiful restaurant. And a pretty nice car too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I asked for. <laughs> yeah, and I hope you get. <laughs> I really do. That would make a nice holiday present. Yes, it would. So how do you compare that experience to working with Bergdorf Goodman and the master sommelier, who I know is your friend, Dustin Wilson, to open their chic new bar restaurant in the men's store almost a year ago now called the Goodman's Bar, which is gorgeous. I, you can see a trend happening in New York pre-pandemic, I will say, you know, where, where Nordstrom's was opening seven new restaurants in their store and I think Bloomingdale's redid some of theirs. Retail, 
especially in department stores and food and beverage and hospitality really became a thing in New York, I would say in the last five years, other than your kind of classic Barneys and things like that. But it seemed as if it was reinventing itself. We were approached by Bergdorf Goodman, kind of a small world, but Bruce Pask, who's the men's fashion director for Goodman's, was opening a new awesome pop-up shop on the third floor of the men's store. And he had asked myself and Dustin Wilson to kind of cater the event and supply great champagne and just make it really thoughtful and great, much like what that store is. And so we did that event and it was it was excellent. And it wasn't a couple of days later, Bruce had called us and said, hey, we're reinventing what was called, I think, Bar 3 years ago in the men's store of Goodman's, their first restaurant, which shut down, I would say, maybe five, six years ago. They were reinventing it and rebuilding it on the second floor. And he said, how would you guys feel about running it and collaborating on this. And I just kind of started Googling Bergdorf Goodman a little bit and really seeing how iconic this store is. And so anyway, the opportunity came about and we said yes and kind of went down this this path of figuring out what a chic, beautiful, little Parisian-inspired cafe wine bar 58th and 5th should feel like in a department store. And I think we landed in a pretty good spot with that, but it took some thought. Well, I was fortunate enough to attend the opening night party for the space. And I know that, you know, Vogue covered it and was filled with dappers and dandies and editors. And there was a cool jazz band. And I thought, wow, this is taking retail therapy to a whole new level. Definitely. That was an incredible event. It's, it's just an awesome company. And we got to work very closely with Linda Fargo and, and Bruce Pass, like iconic people in the world of fashion. And to be honest, I've been walking around in crappy sneakers and in a hoodie for the last 15 years. And all of a sudden, I'm the chef of the most chic, fashion-driven wine bar probably in the world. Did you up your fashion game? Well, I'm, I'm working on that. Good. <laughs> you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have that cafe open for several months before the pandemic. And every day I walked in there, you know, I was just kind of inspired by the fabrics and the and the mannequins and the new stuff coming in and the private clients. And, the, you know, it was just a really awesome way to dive into such an incredible industry that that I've never really paid attention to. It is. And was the plan to collaborate with individual designers around launches and special events as well? Yeah, yeah. You know, we did a great event for Amiri and, and you know, The Row was doing an event there. It seemed as if all the men's kind of brands were doing one great event a year inside that space, but but there was never really a great space to do it. So it was gaining traction and and really amazing designers were were kind of catching wind of of this bar being open and everyone was reaching out to do something there. Ah, wow. Well, I can't wait for that to get back up and running. Yeah, we're really excited. There's something about runny eggs and English cheddar on toasted English muffins. <laughs> we were having a good time there. It was, it was such a good space. Austin, you've been working in restaurants since you were about 14 years old in Omaha, where you grew up. And today you're a Michelin star chef preparing to open this amazing new restaurant. And you worked in places like Copenhagen and Paris. 
What inspired you as a teenager to focus your skills on fine dining and hot cuisine? Please fill us in about this journey that you've been on. Sure, I'd love to. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. A lot of people think Nebraska being farmland in small towns, which is very true, but there is a beautiful little city in the state. I had an amazing mother and father who raised their children with work ethic and, and manners in that kind of whole Midwestern vibe. And when I was 14 years old, I realized that I was never going to be an amazing student. I was getting by, but I didn't love it. I didn't enjoy it. I loved sports. I didn't mind being at school, but but the academic side was just not my cup of tea. So when it came to be, my parents always said, Austin, if, if you excel in school, we'll pay your full way to college and, and you can go about your career. But if you decide to not go to college, you're going to have to pave your own path. And uh, I, I got a job because my parents wanted me to pay for my first car. And that job was at a beautiful restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, it was called the Back Nine Grill. And it was a pretty fine dining establishment at night and in a really great lunch restaurant in the afternoon. And my mother was a server there, just kind of a little part-time gig in, in, in the afternoon while the kids were at school. And she asked me if I was interested in, in bussing tables at night in this restaurant. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, my mother, my father, they weren't amazing cooks. I didn't, I don't have the story of like washing lettuces with my grandma in her sink and in roasting, you know, chickens. I, I didn't really have that story. We didn't grow up with food as a massive interest in the family. It was more of just substance, I guess. But when it came time to get into that restaurant, I, I started bussing tables. They gave me the job. I was so excited. My mom was like still dressing me for work back then. She she sent me to work with a Dalmatian tie on. Because oh, I, I love that. At the, tie, at the time, <laughs> I was like a total kid. <laughs> probably five foot tall and, and looked like I was 10 years old. But I jumped right in and I started bussing tables and, and the vibe of this restaurant at night. It was so busy. And, and all of the sudden, this food was coming out of this kitchen like I had never seen before. Fresh pastas and roasted meats and sauces and all this stuff. And I, and I was just fascinated by it. And and back then, they were still garnishing the rim with like paprika and parsley, you know, and it was like, so old school, but I, I, I was completely obsessed with it. And I asked the chef, I said, I would do anything to get a job back here. I'll wash dishes. I'll, I'll do prep work. I'll, I'll do anything. And he sent me home that night with the Le Cordon Bleu cookbook. And he said, Austin, if you read this front to back, I'll give you a job in the kitchen. So a week later, I went back. I said, I read it, um, which I did. And he put me on the hotline in the little salad section and I was working basically full time after school in this kitchen. And I, I, I'm sure it must have been illegal back then. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> right. you know, I was I was hooked. And, and yeah. to be honest with you, I've never spent another day doing anything other than cooking from that moment. And that was a great job. I, I was making good money. I bought my first car. I was still working in restaurants. But time kind of came where my parents says, hey, are you going to cook for a living or are you going to take school more serious and go to college and get your degree? And, and I told my parents, and this is now after a couple years of cooking and a little more experience, I told my parents that I wanted to go to culinary school and become a chef. And it didn't sit well with them. And, and mind you, this is back in 1999, maybe year 2000. And there was no famous chefs back then. Maybe, maybe Emeril Lagasse was famous because he would 
throw paprika at food and yell bam, but it wasn't like what it is today. There was no reality shows. Chefs weren't rock stars yet. They weren't. And and I felt like my parents were trying to protect me from this dangerous kind of bad habit driven career, which 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 it is and, and can be. I, I said this is what I want to do and I'm gonna move forward with it. And that's what I did. And I shortly thereafter moved out of my parents' house at a young age of seventeen and Moved to downtown Omaha, where I thought I was hot stuff, and got a job at a really high-end kind of fine dining restaurant. And I just started learning about technique and products and ingredients and different ways of doing things. At that point, I was totally hooked, still not fully supported by my parents. I went to culinary school for maybe 10 days and dropped out. I just felt like at that point, I had a few years of cooking experience. I felt like I kind of outgrew Omaha. And at that point, I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, which felt like Chicago to me, coming from Omaha. I'm from Fort Wayne, so I am totally Uh, relating to this story. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And, you know, I I was offered a job as the executive sous chef of a country club in Indianapolis. Oh, that was Action City. Yeah, I was like underqualified, but passionate and ready to work hard. And so I took that job and and I I had 35 cooks under me. I was 20 years old. You know, I was cooking for members of of the country club and and massive weddings and events and really exposed me to not just cooking on a hotline, but managing people and personalities. It was an incredible experience, changed my life. And from there, I moved to Seattle, Washington, and and worked at this beautiful restaurant called Canlis and worked for a chef that had just spent the last eight years under Daniel Hume. So this man came with a whole bag of tricks that I'd never seen, and it was ultra fine dining. At that point, my objective was to work at the best restaurants in the world, and that's exactly what I did. I packed from Seattle after four years to New York, stopped off in Alaska on a fishing boat to make some money and actually survive New York. I was able to work at Noma Restaurant in Copenhagen, which at the time was the number one restaurant in the world and and just an unbelievable (laughs) experience. And all of that led me onto another great adventure in Paris, where I spent three years running three restaurants in Paris, one restaurant in London. Uh, I would split my work week kind of 50-50. Um, which was amazing to live in both of those cities for that amount of time. We got a Michelin star for the restaurant, something that I'll never forget. And all of that led me to my own opportunity here in New York City that we're very excited to open as soon as the world allows and as as soon as the city gets back onto a healthy status. Through this whole journey, when did the creativity kick in? When did you know that you were good at this? That is a great question. You know, it went in stages. The first day I was able to work with these guys and, and, and there's a language and a dance in the kitchen that, that I just I just grabbed onto. And, you know, I was working with 30, 40, 50 year old, you know, men and women at this time. And, and it was a very, very intense work environment. And, but I was always tough and I was always able to hang with them and be faster, be cleaner. So it started early with a foundation of how to walk in a kitchen. And then the next stage was kind of the ability to get a job in good restaurants, but not amazing restaurants. But but there I really started to grab onto technique and understand what it meant to reduce heavy cream into a pasta sauce or mount butter into a sauce without it breaking or what a bechamel sauce was. I picked all of that up like crazy, which is kind of the reason 
that when I did get to culinary school and I did get to class, I just wasn't learning enough. I felt like I was teaching my peers and it felt like a waste of time and money because I was already out in the field making connections and, and learning so much in my 12 hour work days that it would have taken semesters to grab onto in school. So I, I was able to grab onto that technique and that allowed me to kind of start to travel a little bit and make a little more money and have the confidence to be able to walk into a kitchen that call it fine dining or whatever it may be. But I was able to go in there with no real resume, no, no culinary Institute of America education, but I had the chops to, to do whatever section or whatever sauce or whatever meat or fish that the chef would ask me to do. So once I got into these fine dining kitchens and, and I saw the executive chef of, of the kitchen creating dishes, it kind of just opened my mind into how I was able to enhance their dish or be able to have an input that made sense to the chef who had been cooking for 20 years longer than I had. And I just had a real sense of being able to plate really beautifully and whimsically, which is something I still hold on to. I, I just, I just kind of had it. By the time I hit my very first fine dining kitchens, I had 10 years of cooking experience. And once I was actually given the opportunity, which came at the Nomad here in New York City, actually it came at 11 Madison Park before that, but I was actually just given a blank slate to create Austin Johnson food. And <laughs> that has gone through many evolutions and something that as a chef has to continuously evolve. You can't settle on one style, but I really kind of just faked my way through some fancy dishes that passed some really great tests and made their way onto the menu. And, and then I was allowed another opportunity and, and I just, I was creating food that was going on to one-star Michelin menus and charging $40 for, but I was good at it. And they were on the menu because I was good at it. And Daniel Hume would taste all of my food before it obviously made the menu and, and they all passed. So that really built my confidence and that allowed me to say, hey, I've spent four and a half years with Daniel Hume. I can either spend another four and a half years with Daniel Hume, or I can try and be an executive chef somewhere with my own name on my very own menu with my own ideas that don't need to be approved by anyone other than myself. Right. And <laughs> that's a massive leap. And there's a lot of really great chefs in this world that don't really take that leap but well you've earned it yeah, well it's a, it's something i did and i did it at the age of 28 i took an amazing job in in the finger lakes of new york in a small village called skinny atlas and i was given a beautiful restaurant with a beautiful kitchen and a blank slate and the ownership said this place is yours make it what you want and and i did and i turned it into a beautiful fine dining restaurant and and i cooked my own food and and did that very successfully for 4 years there before the opportunity in paris came about the creativity was just a byproduct of 10 years of really hard rugged hot cooking. You got the foundation, but you also have the artistic ability, I think, innately, you know, to an extent. Definitely. I'm, I'm so fortunate for that. Speaking of brands, you know, restaurants and chefs are brands too. And, you know, I was thinking about how do you as a top chef and the other restaurateurs and chefs that you work with think about success in addition to amazing food and a great customer experience? You know, do you 
go online and, and look at customer engagement from that end and think about how people are making uh, recommendations to one another for your restaurants and your food. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. You know, a lot of chefs are chefs because they don't like to be in front of people. They would rather kind of stay in the back of the house. They're not comfortable speaking or, or whatever the situation may be. But I'm just always kind of present in the restaurant. I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I love talking to customers. My favorite part of cooking is to have friends come in and be blown away by their meal. And so I kind of use that to my advantage. Right. So great word of mouth and friends sharing with one another. Yeah. You know, I, I don't take myself or my brand, I guess, terribly seriously. Like, obviously, I have to be responsible and things like that, of course. But I, I really let my food speak for itself in the environment that I create in restaurants and in the restaurant I'm building. That is my brand. And I'm very young in my career as a business owner and as a restaurateur. I'm excited to see, even through things like this, just kind of seeing how I do want to brand myself over the next three, four, five, 10, 15 years with my restaurants and future projects. Well, you're definitely getting noticed. You know, you're you're uh, shy, but it's definitely taking off, Austin. And it's really exciting to see. And, you know, I'm also interested in your opinion of this kind of explosion of food pop-ups and ghost kitchens that's happening right now all over the world in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're seeing a lot of pivots and new concepts by both established chefs and people who have wanted to cook professionally and are now finding an opportunity to do that by opening pop-up restaurants. So I'm just curious about your take on this. Do you think people are feeling freer now to kind of cook what they want to? Yeah, well, you know, everyone got laid off. So everyone is, is very free and very available and growing very bored. And it's, it's incredible the amount of talent that works in these kitchens in New York City. I mean, you know, Daniel Hume is the chef of 11 Madison Park, but I can guarantee there's 60 chefs underneath him that have a daily input on how that restaurant feels and succeeds and tastes. All these amazing people, these talented people are free agents. And the other side of that is there's a lot of kitchens and a lot of restaurants not in operation. And these free agents are wanting to get in there and make a little money and express themselves after sitting on the couch for six months. And, and I, think it's, I think that that is great. I think it's unfortunate how we're getting there. But yeah, all over kind of Instagram right now is young sous chefs and young cooks kind of taking a leap. And, and maybe it's just for a week or maybe it's for a few months, but they're kind of creating their own little small businesses. And a lot of them have done that through private chefing in the Hamptons or cooking from their home and delivering food to people's homes, online cooking demos. There's really kind of all sorts of creative outlets that your workforce hasn't sought out prior to all of this. So I think it's great. And it seems like people are really responding to that, too. I think they both want to support, you know, chefs, but also it leans into the excitement that's always been there for pop-ups, which is this new kind of limited time. Hey, have you heard about this? With maybe some new food that they haven't necessarily focused on before, like a vegetarian pop-up or a special barbecue spot. So I, I think it does kind of meet the needs amazing. You know, one thing in New York is this has been a very, very hard time. And my girlfriend has four restaurants here in the city. And to see the support of the GoFundMes back in April and the, the people ordering extra takeout and delivery or an extra bottle of champagne for their takeout just to support 
these small businesses and these restaurants, I think is, I think it's amazing. I don't, I don't even think it's a New York thing. I think it's, it's probably nationwide people that love their restaurant or love their city or, or respect that industry are really giving back during this time and doing everything that they can to, to try and keep their favorite restaurant open. Right. Well, since you mentioned that, where are her restaurants? Tell us about that. She owns Air's Champagne Parlor and Tokyo Record Bar on McDougal Street cool. in Greenwich. And then she also owns Niche Niche and Special Club further south on McDougal and King Street. Talk, you know, she's pivoted 14,000 different ways in these last six, eight months. And, and it's been really inspiring to watch her do all of that. Right. You two will keep each other on your toes. That, Absolutely. That yeah. sounds great. So it's interesting, you know, that we're talking about how chefs are pivoting and into this time. And a lot of people asking me, what's going to happen to all this empty brick and mortar retail space that's available? Because even before the pandemic hit, traditional stores were already starting to shut down. Right. So I'm wondering, will that be easier for restaurateurs or for entrepreneurs who maybe have wanted to get into the restaurant business? Because the restaurants were super popular before the pandemic. Food, that just hasn't, that isn't going down. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great point. You know, I, I kind of hope so, yes. 14,000 restaurants in New York City is, is, I think, what we were at before the pandemic. And that is a lot of restaurants. But I hope so. I hope it fills up with something. I'm not quite intelligent enough to probably forecast what it will be. I'm sure a lot of those spaces that were retail would be very expensive to turn into a restaurant, depending on the situation. But I certainly hope so. I would love to see 50 of the colleagues that I've worked with in the past open their own place because they're delicious cooks. And, you know, I, I would love to see, I would love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because restaurants and food continue to be desired, desirable, and we'll see if yeah. the uh, business models change that allow that to expand and allow that to happen. So you have this working farm that's very special in upstate New York, and yes. you're developing a big new restaurant project in Tribeca, which I'm very happy about because I live downtown, so it'll be close to me. Please tell us a little bit about the Rigger Hill Farm and One White Street. Sure. I was very fortunate to cook for a couple that frequent in Frenchie quite often in Paris, and they asked me if I would ever be interested in coming back to New York to open a restaurant. I said, that's kind of my dream job, so absolutely. And so what we ended up with was this amazing townhouse on White Street and West Broadway in Tribeca. It's a four-story townhouse, but it's only 600 square foot per floor. So it's very small, but very tall. And the, a little bit of background of the building is back in 1973, when John Lennon and Yoko Ono were getting a bit of grief about visa and deportation and things like that. They created a conceptual country known as Newtopia. And the embassy of Newtopia is One White Street. And there's a really cool YouTube video of them kind of announcing the country and waving a white flag, which was the flag of Newtopia. And so we, we own this building and we have this beautiful place that for the last however many years has been a four story kind of penthouse apartment. And <laughs> we decided to change that into a restaurant. So it's, it's a beautiful space. We're going to do three floors of dining kind of during this period now. We would like to open just the ground floor, hopefully around March. 
and it's just going to be a beautiful little wine bar with with a very worldly kind of cuisine. We'll have green curry and mussels on the menu, but we might also have Dover Soul. So so there's really no borders or boundaries with the cuisine, which is exactly what Newtopia was 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 a place without passports and, and only people. So there's a little bit of inspiration there. And then eventually on the second and third floor, we would love to open maybe a slightly different concept, maybe something a little more fancy, maybe something less fancy. We'll kind of pivot when the time comes. But you know, I'm partnered with Dustin Wilson, the master sommelier from Verve Wine here in Tribeca as well. An amazing friend of mine. We've we've known each other since back in the 11 Madison Park days and just a fantastic guy that that I'm on this journey with. So we're opening that. And when I came back from Paris, my number one rule was do not compromise on the vegetables that you want to work with. I know that's <laughs> what a rule to have, but that was kind of my rule. When I was in France, I was exposed to what real farming was, what real produce looked like, what seasonality really is, because France is the absolute best at that in the world. There's nothing better than French produce. So when I came back, I was I was fortunate enough to get 10 acres of farmland. We hired a gentleman by the name of Elliot Coleman. For those of you listening that know anything about biodynamic kind of organic farming, you would know who Elliot Coleman is. He's an 81-year-old legend who has several books out on on what it means to be kind of sustainable, small agricultural farms. And that really pertains to kind of a farm to restaurant kind of mentality. He flew down to my farmland, put a shovel in the ground and says, you have a farm here. This soil is not perfect, but it's great. And so we immediately built a third of an acre Westbrook greenhouse that allows us to grow 12 months a year. We have three movable high tunnels that are unbelievable. We have seating rooms, washrooms. We have six acres of field crops. We're going to soon have hops so we can make our own beer. Uh, It's just a really incredible farm. And I hired a farm manager by the name of Danny, who went through all of Elliot's internships and helped with stone barns and spent several years up there. And he's done an amazing job at this kind of no-till, very old school almost ancient way of farming where, you know, we don't use tractors and, uh, you know, obviously no sprays. If we have a pest on our tomatoes, we're going to literally buy a different pest off the internet to get rid of that pest instead of spraying them with something. So it's it's a real ecosystem up there where we have honeybees and soon to be chickens. And, and that farm is for me, everything in the soil all of the time will be will be determined by myself and my chef team and and the whole farm up there is is in place to supply my restaurant and logistically it's going to be something that uh, is different for me but uh, i can promise you that we will have the most fresh most beautiful most seasonal product out of any restaurant in the world Wow, I cannot wait to taste the vegetables coming out of that ground. Yes, it's nice. My farm manager asked me back in March, he says, Austin, we're supposed to open this this restaurant in a few months, but this pandemic is hitting. Should we cover crop the entire farm and just invest in the soil and kind of wash this year up and try again next year? Or should we plant this farm as if this pandemic is going to go away? And you're going to open your restaurant at the end of the summer. So I said, plant it. I'm going to open this restaurant because we really weren't sure of 
of really how bad this was all going to be. So all summer I've had thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of vegetables coming out of the ground with, with no restaurant menu to put them on. So we've had a good time up at the Hudson Farmer's Market and selling to restaurants down here in New York City and, and really all over New York State. So That's great. Wow. Well, and also the concept for the restaurant itself, my head is exploding and the experiential possibilities. I mean, just riffing off the history of the place, you know, I'm, I'm, there's so much, we're going to have to talk about this. (laughs) There's so much you could do. Definitely. Really, really cool. So, okay. You have a tendency to hop around the world and have multiple projects going on at one time, as you've described. I'm just wondering, I know you've got the big restaurant project going on, but will we be seeing you in another pop-up restaurant somewhere? And if you could choose anywhere in the world to open a little pop-up restaurant, where would it be and why? What would you do there? Every couple of years, I go back to Omaha, Nebraska, and I, I do a pop-up. I do it for 75 people, one night a week. And I really do it to go back and cook for my family because since I was 17, I've been so far away from them. And I almost never even had the opportunity. The first time I ever cooked for my parents was just five years ago when I flew back to Omaha from Paris to do a pop-up. And it was an amazing experience for me. And Omaha was so generous, so much so that I went back two years later and did it again. So that to answer that part of the question, I would say Omaha. I would love to go back and do it there. My other answers would be Tokyo, Rio, Singapore. You know, but I love going back to see my family because this industry has stripped away thousands of hours and in, in holidays and crucial amounts of family time. So I do always enjoy that. Oh, that's your spot. I I love that. I think that is so special, and I'm sure the town loves it when you come back. Yeah, and... it's good fun. Yeah. And all the local chefs want to just kind of come and help me out. So I have so much help, really good, talented help. Dustin picks all the wine for me and ships it into Omaha. So the wine pairing is like next level. It's really great. But as far as the next pop up, you know, I was supposed to go to Rio just in 10 days to do an event down there with a good friend of mine who has a restaurant. And I'm going to go ahead and postpone that just due to what the future may, may hold. But that's fine. Yeah. Probably prudent right now. Yeah, to do I did that. an event. I did an event over Christmas in Bogota, Colombia, a few years ago, which was, which was amazing, and trying to get back there to do that. So I'll, I'll be floating around. You know, I'll, I'll always. I be bet using, you will. I'll always be using this industry as an opportunity to travel because it's it's a really good one. Well, we are gonna follow you and just enjoy the ride. It sounds like you're going a lot of places. I hope so. And cooking amazing food. That's right. Thank you so much for sharing your background with us and spending some time with us today. And I know that the brands and chefs and foodies out there are really, really appreciative. So, Of course. It's been an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you in Tribeca in March. Fingers Absolutely. crossed. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast, where something new is always popping. For guest ideas or to innovate your next pop-up, email me at susan at popupsummer.com. Also, head over to our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram at Pop-Up Summer. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. 
It's easy. Head over to your Apple Podcast app, scroll through the episodes, click on five stars, and leave a review. 